Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty Show. Very happy to be uh, conversing once again with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, great to be back again. Well, we, we never have a shortage of content, and I guess that's something I should probably be grateful for. There's the silver lining, but sometimes I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that I don't live in crazy land. Can you talk me off the ledge here? No, I can't because we do live in crazy land, okay. and, and I feel the same way. And frankly, I'd rather we had less to talk about. Uh, I'd much prefer to be out in the garage wrenching on one of my old bikes or cars uh, than have to worry about this juggernaut of insane totalitarianism that just keeps rising and rising. Well, and you and I were talking as we were getting ready to go on the air. Uh, there are a couple very pertinent examples of this, and, and you introduced me to a new word, mm-hmm. anathematizing. First of all, let's get mm-hmm. a definition of what that means. Well, it's, it's uh, essentially in a religious term. You know, the, the Catholic Church would hurl an anathema, which essentially meant that you had written or said something that rendered you persona non grata in the eyes of the Church authorities and had cast you out of, uh, of the Catholic Church. And uh, in, in a secular sense, that's what's happening today. We were talking off the air about what just happened to uh, Daniel McAdams, who's a guy who's associated with the Rand Paul Institute. And he was anathematized by Twitter, taken off their platform permanently for offending somebody's sensibilities. He apparently referred to Sean Hannity as a retard, or, or that something he did was retarded. That was the, that was the apparent violation. Uh, and this uh, was taken as tantamount to promoting violence against uh, or attacking or threatening people. I, 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 I take that directly from the Twitter, uh, uh, Twitter ban statement that was given to McAdams. So now, you know, somebody's feelings, if you hurt somebody's feelings, are taken as equivalent to going to their house with a baseball bat and beating them up. Boy, that's a, that's a pretty low standard, or I mean, a pretty, pretty low threshold to meet. It's no standard. It's, it's, it's like the Me Too thing, where somebody's feelings or assertions are sufficient. That's it. You know, end of discussion, you hurt my feelings, I feel aggrieved, therefore I'm the victim and you're my oppressor. Yeah, you should feel bad and do whatever I say. That's just weaponized sure. guilt. Yes, and there is, there is absolutely no objective, defined standard. Again, it, it has to be emphasized. It simply comes down to whether someone out there uh, takes issue with or is offended by what you say. That to be determined exclusively by the person who listens to what you've said or reads something that you've written. So it's a completely totalitarian standard. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to prognosticate for me. Where does something like this lead? Are there historical precedents for where this kind of uh, totalitarian thinking and thought control might lead? Well, of course, the very term politically correct derives from Stalin's Russia. That, that's where it came into currency first. And uh, it, you know, it was this sort of intuited, uh, n- not explicit, but this arbitrary, uh, arbitrary policy that anybody at any time could be, uh, could be declaimed a heretic against the orthodoxy, thus politically incorrect, and subject to a stint in the Lubyanka, followed by uh, you know, a moment before the ditch and the bullet in the back of the head. Wow. Uh, also, in, you know, in Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge era in the 70s, uh, where people who wore glasses were considered to be educated and, just, and shot for that reason. That's the sort of world that we're, we're headed toward right now. 
kind of spooky, especially for, uh, well, someone like yourself who is uh, is a truth teller. And, and you may hurt a few feelings in, in speaking truths that people don't want to acknowledge. It, it's, Brian, it's much worse than that. It's, it's something that threatens anybody who dares to voice any uh, opinion that is not orthodox. As, as uh, Orwell wrote in 1984, you have to genuflect before these orthodoxies, which are constantly shifting. You have to keep abreast of whatever is and is not politically correct. And you are only permitted to voice the politically correct opinions at your workplace uh, and, and even in your private life. If you put something on social media, you express an opinion about something, you, you know, you have a political point of view. And that is enough to destroy your life in this environment that we've created or that they've created. Interesting. There, you're probably familiar with Jeff Deist for, with, with the uh, Mises Institute. Sure. Um, he sure. had, had a remarkable article that I saw yesterday about how political correctness is it's about control. It's not about uh, manners like some people would try to excuse it. That's right. And he's 100% correct. That's exactly what it is. And again, uh, it's about um, power asserted arbitrarily. There's no clear standard. You can't really know ahead of time uh, what not to do. All you, all you can know is that you must cavil in fear uh, that authority is going to not like something that you did uh, or said or didn't say. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a tricky place to be, but I don't know. I, you, you strike me because you're a Virginian, um, and, and someone who I think is very in touch with freedom. Uh, you strike me as the kind of person who, uh, is not going to sit back and just roll over and show him your belly. And I don't feel like I would either. I, I want to speak truth, not for the sake of sensationally, you know, I don't, I don't want to do the Geraldo thing. We're going to get you riled today, but, but it's important enough to speak truth that uh, I guess I'm, I'm willing to suffer for it. But it sounds like there are plenty of people lining up. Well, good. We're here to make you suffer. Well, you know, in their defense, uh, and, uh, and, and to sort of put an asterisk behind myself, and perhaps you'll also agree with me on this, I'm in a very fortunate position in that uh, I work for myself. Uh, I don't have to go to a, a corporate job where I have to uh, think about uh, the consequences of what I might say offending some company policy. I'm not beholden to anybody, so I'm much more free and much more at liberty uh, to write and speak uh, the truth as I see it. Most people are not in that position. Most people are stuck working for a company, and if they've got families, they've got a responsibility to take care of their families and, and keep the rent paid and food in the fridge. And I understand and I'm sympathetic to the fear, the economic fear that, that most people live under and which compels them to behave in a way that, that isn't quite the same way that you and I have to behave. Well, and it's and it's not limited to anything that resembles common sense. You and I were talking again just before we went on the air about uh, this this black jazz musician named Daryl Davis, who remarkably has befriended and I don't want to use the word converted, but he has he has talked down to earth about 200 KKK members. Now, look, that, that's some pretty dedicated, um, you know, sure. ideological uh, thinking there. But be, be, when they got to know him personally, when they got to know him as a person, these guys have literally surrendered their robes to him and said, you know what, I can't be a part of this anymore because I can't hate you. Yeah, well, you know what he did? He To use the, the, the nauseous term that the left, the rancid left, loves to use, he reached out. To these people, and he attempted to connect with them on a human level. But in so doing, he violated the orthodoxy of identity politics. 
which comes down to you are not an individual and other people are not individuals. You are part of a collective that is based on whatever skin color you happen to have and wherever you happen to your family happens to have come from, uh, your, your, your sex, your sexual orientation, and so on. It is the utter uh, abnegation, the denial of any human individuality. We all must be herded into these antagonistic collectives uh, that war with each other uh, to the great benefit of the state, which, which intervenes to keep us from killing our, each other. One of the comments that uh, Daryl Davis makes is he has talked to just about every group you can imagine with a superiority complex. But he, he finally ran into one group whose superiority complex is so thorough that even they started calling him a racist. Care to guess which group mm-hmm. that was? Boy, let me think about it for a couple of minutes. <laughs> Punch a Nazi! Yeah, it, it's... <laughs> Yeah, there is no group of people or no ideological movement, I'll put it that way, because I don't want to collectivize people, but there's no ideological movement that's more intolerant, inflexible, rigid, doctrinaire than the modern, rancid, authoritarian, social justice warrioring left. Yeah, and 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 it's amazing to see them calling him racist, telling him, hey, you don't, uh, you don't support or uh, you don't, uh, how did he put it? No way we're going to make peace or change minds. I can't read a lot of this because there's so many F-bombs in it, but this is effing war. You better back the F up before you get smacked the F up. And it's like, you guys don't even realize who you're talking to. This guy's a peacemaker, and, and yep. they're, they're totally deriding him. Well, to use another term from the Soviet era, from the 30s, uh, from 30s Stalin Russia, uh, they called such people deviationists. Deviationists. I'm going to write that one down, too. I'm learning mm-hmm. all kinds of vocabulary here. But yet, again, you know, history is fascinating to me because it does recur. The, you know, these these sad patterns. You know, you have to learn this lesson. The Soviet Union was responsible for uh, what? What's the figure? Thirty million people uh, directly killed and and a hundred, several hundred million people enslaved. And that horrible lesson. And then the lesson of, of Mao's China and Khmer Rouge Cambodia and on and on. So many lessons. So many bodies has to be relearned over and over again. People, people get, get snookered by this ideology. There's some sort of odd, uh, odd attraction. I was watching a video the other day, and these are young college kids calling each other comrades as they went mm-hmm. up to the, you know, the podium to talk. Did you see the thing? Uh, was it the uh, Democratic Socialist Convention? That's them. Yeah. That's them, yeah. Yeah. We've, we've got to go to break here in just a moment. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. Eric, I think we've done a really good job of identifying the problem. When we come back, let's talk about some of the things that reasonably people like you and I and anybody else who's listening can do to uh, to claim our freedoms, to peacefully use them sure. and, and not knuckle under in the face of ideological threats. Sure. All right. We'll take a very quick break. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Uh, we've, been, uh, we've been talking a little bit about how it's not getting easier to speak the truth. In fact, there are forces and, and there's big tech giants that are lined up doing their best to keep the truth from being spoken. And as uh, you pointed out, Eric, you don't have to say anything really profoundly incendiary to find yourself deplatformed or banned or otherwise, you know, on the outs. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. Uh, all you have to do is disagree with the various orthodoxies, and many of these orthodoxies aren't explicitly stated. When I got demonetized by Google, all I got was a generic notice from them that uh, I had violated some uh, abstract term of service, or, uh, th- and they would not give me a specific example of what exactly they took issue with. So what can we do? Let's talk solutions here. I, I still value the truth. I know you still value the truth. I think mm-hmm. most people within the sound of our voices do as well. But mm-hmm. what are some of the solutions? How can we conduct ourselves in a world where we're being fitted for a gag? Well, everybody's got to determine for, the, for themselves how much risk they're willing to take. But I do think that the critical thing is that we not be so afraid. Uh, they're counting on our fear and our cowardice, our willingness to sort of duck our heads and go along with the program. Right now, we still have the opportunity, though, to speak our minds. We can still do that. And if we make use of that freedom, we potentially can stop things from getting much worse, getting to the point where you're no longer legally permitted to speak. And if you do so, that you're subject to a criminal sanction, as is already the case in a number of Western European countries. Um, so, you know, we don't have to be abusive toward people. That's not what we're talking about. But if, if you believe that uh, somebody is in error or you disagree with something that somebody says, do not be afraid to speak your mind and back it up with facts and logic and reason and let the chips fall where they may. I think one of the most liberating ideas that I've ever been introduced to is just to accept the fact that not everyone will like you. And it's OK for people not to like you once you get past that hurdle of oh but someone might say something or think something mm-hmm. unkind it's none of your business what they think of you and then you're, right. and you're you free know, to hold your opinions your statement is very profound i also think that um beyond superficialities i think people will respect and like you more if you're a straight shooter and you're honest as opposed to one of these here, here. uh these smiling false people who says what they think you know the other person's going to want to hear but you know it's not genuine you've met people like that and you don't really trust them, and you may smile at them and shake their hand, but you really don't want to be around them because there's something inherently fraudulent about them that you can smell. Reminds me of most everybody I ever see out on the campaign trail, actually. Yeah, sure, exactly. (laughs) I think one of the reasons people like Trump, and again, I find myself defending the orange man, but he says what's on his mind. Whether you like it or not, there it is. And I think people respond to that. No, that's I that's I I love it. Now, we're going to talk about the orange car guy here in a moment, but I want to I want to share something with you that was made very clear to me. I, my kids were were visiting from uh well, across the world and from out of town over the last couple of weeks. So, uh two of my daughters had rental cars when they showed up. And both of these rental cars had the automatic stop start system. Yes, our favorite acronym. Yeah. <laughs> Which I made sure and pointed out to them. You know what that means, right? But uh, that's I, right. I loathe that system. That's that is the clumsiest, clunkiest thing to come up to a stoplight or whatever, and suddenly the car stops. And especially it was hot, so the air conditioner yeah. you know is is now right. not operating at peak efficiency. Um, ask them what they thought about it. They didn't care much for it either. But it sounds like this is becoming um, a non-negotiable standard part of of features on cars. Well, it is unfortunately almost any every in fact. Uh, newly designed car that's available now will have that system. You can still find a few new cars in terms of the calendar year 2019 that haven't got it yet, but that's only because they're still essentially 
uh, a year old or two old or three old cars that haven't been updated significantly over the course of the last several years. They're going to have it. Now, there are a variety of objections to make to this, but I've, I think it's interesting and ironic that we have this obsession with distractions and safety, as I like to mm-hmm. bleed like a goat. <laughs> but this is another one of these distracting things. You know, you're in the car and all of a sudden the engine shudders to a halt, as you experienced. And you're like, what the heck just happened? And then, then it shudders back to life. And it's just another little thing that's sticking in your, you know, like a pebble in your shoe or a stick in your back that's, that's increasing the stress on the road and making the drive less pleasant. And in my opinion, ultimately making the roads less safe because people are annoyed, stressed out, and distracted by all of this stuff. Yeah, I could, I could see this contributing to frustration behind the wheel that may, you know, manifest itself in other ways, a heavy foot or whatever. Right. Now, luckily, um, almost all the cars that still have this system have a button, so you can turn it off. The problem is you have to do that every single time you go for a drive. Wow. Well, let's uh, let's shift for a moment here, and let's talk about the orange car guy. I saw that you had, had written <laughs> yes. this commentary. Now, that's tongue-in-cheek referring to Trump, but uh, what's the gist uh, of this column? Well, the astonishing thing is we have a president uh, who is actually trying to go to bat uh, for car buyers and against the car industry. He is, uh, he is trying to rescind a couple of the most destructive and anti-car federal regulations to come down the pike in at least 20 years, uh, the first being um, a, a near doubling, almost, of the current mandatory minimum miles per gallon that all cars are required to get or get socked with fines that are, of course, passed on to the car buyers, and uh, tripling of the amount of those fines. He, he's, you know, he's been trying to do that, and the car industry and the state of California, well, not the entire industry, but uh, four major car companies, Honda, BMW, Volkswagen, uh, Mercedes, uh, have joined up with California and said, well, if the federal government isn't going to regulate us, we'll regulate ourselves. Can you imagine that? Why would they do that? What, what is, how does that serve their self-interest to, to put that rule on themselves? Well, there are a lot of factors here. I'll give you several. One is I think that they believe that it makes sense for them to offload uh, the regulations with regard to emissions, for example, onto the uh, power-generating infrastructure. Because if they, if they start building electric cars, now electric cars will help them with their fuel economy, right? Because uh, they get infinite miles per gallon. So this is, in effect, a way for them to justify uh, manufacturing more electric cars and offloading the regulatory burden of having to comply with emissions regs, too, because electric cars don't have any tailpipe exhaust emissions regs to comply with. So there's, you know, that's, there's that. And, of course, there's also just this virtue signaling that has begun to suffuse everything. It's ironic that this, this radical way of looking at the world, this radical sort of leftist point of view that was sort of fringe back in the late 60s and early 70s is now the establishment point of view. The most establishment entities that you can think of, big corporations, are now as radicalized as Saul Linsky was circa 1972. Amazing. Well, I, I'm grateful for small things because I don't see a lot, at least on the political landscape, I don't see a lot of things that uh, that I feel are, are worth celebrating. But it does make me feel good. Even I can't say that I'm a, I'm a diehard Trump supporter, but I'm grateful for whatever he's doing to to move back this uh, regulatory uber state that seems to want mm-hmm. to impose itself on us. 
Yeah, you know, people have pointed out that he has authoritarian tendencies, and certainly he does. He favors some degree of industrial policy. He's not opposed to the income tax and so on, but he's sort of a he, – he's a, he's a time travel machine. He would bring us back to 1980s or 1970s level of government micromanagement. And you know what? I would fall on the floor in happiness if we could go back to 1985 in terms of the degree of government meddling in the economy and in, in my life and yours. Well, and, and one of the other areas where I've seen this just recently, in fact, I, I have an article here from Jeffrey Tucker about uh, it's it's the uh, light bulb. What did he call this? It's uh, the li- it's light bulb liberation day. And that is lifting of those regulations against making incandescent light bulbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there was the reason for that. The backstory on that is that incandescent light bulbs were simply too cheap. There wasn't enough profit margin. So uh, they came up with the shibboleth that they were uh, energy consumptive and bad for the environment and had to be done away with. So they were done away with in favor of these LED bulbs and so on, which we were told, oh, look, you're going to buy one of these light bulbs every 10 years. They'll last that long and you'll be so happy. Yeah. Well, they don't last that long, as people <laughs> have found out. And they cost, what, two or three times at least what an incandescent bulb used to cost you. So even though the incandescent might use a little more electricity in the net, uh, the incandescent bulb is still much cheaper, and your house doesn't look like an embalming room. <laughs> I think that's the you best the description I've Those things give off. It's terrible. <laughs> Eric, tell everybody where they can find your website. Sure. Uh, it's epautos.com, also mirrored at ericpetersautos.com. And if you want to hit me up on Twitter before they ban me, it's uh, libertariancarg uh, at Twitter. Okay. Eric, thanks so much for being my guest. I look forward to talking with Brian. you again next week. Me too. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113. I think for the first time in a few days, I actually have all my ducks in a row, and i got to give a shout-out to my friend Sean Denovan for some amazing computer wizard, wizardry. You know, I, I don't think even I fully appreciate the complexity that goes into making many, many different uh, audio sources and components all come together in one smooth delivery vehicle for, uh, you know, the kind of uh, thought-provoking content that uh, we like to put out here at the Loving Liberty Radio Network. But boy, if one little thing gets switched around or one component or one computer goes bad, um, man, it's... Uh, it's kind of a thing. I don't want to make it sound like an ordeal. I'm not, you know, I'm the victim. <laughs> Somebody feels sorry for me. But uh, there's definitely a lot of little extra steps. I, I liken it to juggling flaming chainsaws while riding a tightrope on a unicycle. I mean, something most people can do without any problem. But I find it just a little challenging. Hey, let's talk about light bulbs. This came up in our conversation with uh, Eric Peters in the last couple of segments. But, um, I, I have to admit, since the, the whole, well, we need to move towards uh, fluorescent or for, uh, toward LED light bulbs has come out, I bought into the propaganda initially that, uh, wow, these are such long-lasting bulbs. Like Eric said, once every 10 years you'll have to buy a new one, or so they said. But the light was very, I don't know how to, how to put it. It was, it was an unnatural kind of light. There was no warmth to it. And the bulbs 
Well, they certainly didn't last as long as they were supposed to. And then you had the added problem of now be careful when you remove these because these contain mercury and you don't want to, you know, precipitate some kind of a uh, hazardous materials incident. So I was really happy when I saw that uh, the war on the incandescent light bulb may be in, uh, I don't know what you would call it, an armistice? I I don't know. They've laid down the arms here. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a marvelous article called It's Light Bulb Liberation Day. Here's how he puts it. He says the Department of Energy is putting down its guns and withdrawing troops in the war on the incandescent bulb that began in 2007. Now, it's pretty late in the day. The last factory to make them in the U.S. shut down in 2010. It's hard to find them in a store, in which case, thank goodness for Amazon. Still, he says, the damage can be reversed. Our houses can be, again, warm and beautiful and legally. You can turn on the lights in the morning and not have your eyes lacerated by blindingly fake electric light. As the Wall Street Journal summed summed up the current moment, if you like old-fashioned incandescent light bulbs, you can keep buying them. Now, I don't want to rain on your parade, but if you recall, uh, we played last week a couple of excerpts from the uh, seven-hour-long town hall forum, not debate, with the Democratic candidates on uh, climate change. That was one of the questions. Well, would you uh, bring back the regulations on incandescent light bulbs and and the ban on incandescent light bulbs? And, of course, Bernie Sanders. Well, of course I would. Yes. Uh, Is it something that makes people's lives more difficult and more expensive? Then, of course, I would do that. Of course, in the name of saving the planet. I'm just grateful that we can have some choices. And and to me, it really does come down to there, there's a difference in the type of light. Um, can I confess, I've never purchased a light bulb ever in my life with the consideration of, hmm, I wonder if this one will save uh, some uh, energy. Is, is this a more efficient design? No. You know what I'm concerned about? Will it light up the area that I need it to light up? That's it. And is it the right size? Because sometimes, you know, you can you can find, you know, bulbs that, that have to be a little more specialized. But I, I want that incandescent glow. Jeff Tucker says, as a huge fan of Ayn Rand's short novel Anthem, the liberation of the light bulb means so much to him. He says it was the the novel Anthem was published in 1937, but mostly drafted in the 1920s in Russia. And if you remember in this dystopian story, A cruel government committee comes down hard on a young man who has rediscovered the light bulb. They condemn him for daring to think for himself and for presuming to override the planned poverty of the social order. The society ruled by the total state is perfectly happy with its candles and desires that no steps forward can be taken that are not explicitly approved by the ruling class. Wow, that sounds kind of familiar. Jeffrey Tucker says Ayn Rand used the example of the light bulb because it's such a great symbol of the power of the human mind. It is within our power to harness the energy that comes from the heavens. The power of the sky can be made to do man's bidding, observes the anthem protagonist. There are no limits to its secrets and its might, and it can be made to grant us anything if we but choose to ask. He says, as Murray Rothbard observed riffing on Rand's insight, The light bulb finally freed humanity from having to defer to the Earth's rotations to determine work hours. It allowed night baseball, it made our highways safer, put civilization on a 24-7 basis. The light bulb means much more than what it is in its physical essence. It was the dawn of mankind's or humankind's mastery of the world. 
Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, a few years ago, I was contemplating Rand's novel and looked up at my ceiling fan. Three glorious incandescent bulbs were lighting up the room in a warm glow. These particular bulbs lacked blue and white frosting. The glass was clear, and the curved filament burned like a miniature flame. And yet that flame is caged and made to be a servant of human dreams and aspirations. But he says the deeper story is about a thoroughly insidious attempt by bureaucracies together with a gaggle of politicians to ban the light bulb as we've always known it. In other words, it's the plot Anthem lived in real time, or the plot of Anthem lived in real time. It began with the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007. Sorry, I just had to see what the... uh, what the acronym was there, which called for a phase out of the incandescent bulb by 2012, variously amended by Congress to push out the deadline. Now, the law, the law banned light bulbs by wattage, but not by name. But in practice, it meant death for the kind of light we've enjoyed since the 19th century. Gone from the shelves were incandescent bulbs of 100 watts. Then it got worse as 40 and 60 watt incandescent light bulbs were killed off. Factories that once produced them were shut. Once you dig more deeply, you find something remarkable. There was no scientific basis for this ban at all. Consider the 10 years ago analysis of Howard Branston, a fellow of the Illuminating Engineering Society of North America, and the brains behind the refurbishment of the Statue of of Liberty in the 1980s. Branston argued that the government's metric of lumens per watt was completely bogus. It doesn't consider the quality of light for a room. It doesn't consider the costs of making replacements or the environmental danger of more efficient bulbs, since fluorescent bulbs contain mercury, and doesn't consider the whole reason we have light bulbs to to begin with, that is to light up a space. It focuses on one narrow point at the expense of all these broader considerations. He said the calculations used by the government and others promulgating or promoting the use of compact fluorescence is strictly mathematical conjecture and has nothing to do with reality. To which Jeff Tucker says that that rings true to him. So how can the consumer tell which are the best bulbs? Well, Branston says more than a person's subjective judgment tempered by, or rather that a person's subjective judgment tempered by a consideration of how long bulbs last, that should be more than enough. You don't need bureaucracies. You don't need experts. But even if the new bulbs are awful, don't they save energy? Well, Branston said, hoping that lighting is going to make a major contribution borders on ridiculous. We'd be better off promoting occupancy sensors and dimming controls and recommending all dimmers be set to only provide 95% of the power to the light sources. Yikes. Why did the government do this to us? Jeff Tucker says it fits with everything else about federal policy for the last 60 years. It seems to have the goal of increasing human misery as its main goal. That's why our toilets, faucets, detergent, and washers have all been wrecked with water use controls, even though none of these policies make a significant difference in overall water usage. Just look at what government's done to our bathrooms. It's why we're pushed to recycle, even though no one has ever demonstrated that the mandates help the environment. It's why we're taxed on things we want to do, like drive cars. It's why we can no longer medicate ourselves in normal ways without a doctor's permission. It's why we have to endure hectoring lectures from public officials about fast food, sweets, and our trash generation. What do all of these policies have in common? They target things that we enjoy and that make our lives better and then force on us inferior products and services. 
And Jeffrey Tucker says that's the penance we must do in the interest of the common good. Never mind whether the common good is actually enhanced in real life. Which gets us back to Ayn Rand and the light bulb. He says she had a prophetic way of seeing the truth about government. She grew up under a regime that promised heaven on earth, but ended up making a hell for everyone not part of the ruling class. She saw that governments could not produce imaginative goods and eventually would fall back on celebrating the poverty and destruction they cause and inventing an ethic of sacrifice for the whole as a means of covering up their crimes. Why, if you don't go along, you are an enemy of the people. All right, we'll take a very quick break. We'll come back and finish up this article. You have some thoughts on this? I'd like to hear them. Call me up at 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. are back. This is Loving Liberty. Nope. Nope. I I can only hope that uh, somehow, by candlelight perhaps, we continue to move forward. Okay, thanks, Sam. Good to hear from you. Coming back to Jeffrey Tucker's article, he says, it's incredible that we have come full circle. Just like in the novel Anthem, the U.S. government actually almost banned the light bulb as we know it, or as we've known it. He says, just think about the awesome implications of that and ask yourself why we put up with it. Now, he says, on a personal note, his own dear mother replaced all her incandescence with fluorescence several years ago. And he said, I was sitting in her house feeling vaguely irritated by the searing lights in the room, cold and dreary, and had to turn them off. And then sitting in the dimly lit room, he said, my thought was, this is what government has done to us. A great invention from the dawn of modernity is being driven out of use. Do I have to bring my own candles next holiday season? Why should governments be in the position of deciding what technologies can and cannot be used? As if consumers are too stupid to make such decisions for themselves. He asks, who is to decide what's efficient and what the proper trade-off should be between the energy expended and light produced? More fundamentally... Why should governments be in the business of picking right and wrong technologies at all? He says there's a grave cost to regulation, and it's not just about freedom itself. It's about experimentation and innovation. A vast regulatory apparatus on cell phone technology in 1990 could never have imagined something like a modern smartphone. Regulations on digital commerce in 2000 might have stopped the rise of peer-to-peer services like Uber. Bitcoin is another example of a technology that blasted through the nationalization of money to show us something entirely new. Indeed, he says one of the reasons that the digital world was so innovative until a few years ago was precisely because the regulators were not yet caught up with the pace of innovation. That's probably changing with the new antitrust push. Regulations on on technology freeze the status quo in place and make it permanent. That's an interesting thought. I mean, there are a lot of people who'd say, well, you know, things are pretty good right now. I don't see any reason why we need to change it. Now, I count myself very fortunate, though, to uh, 
to have had exposure to some of the um, disruptive innovation that keeps cropping up. And where once I might have been tempted to say, well, you know, everything's fine. We're all good. Don't need to change anything. I'm actually quite encouraged because most of the innovations that are coming along right now are of a decentralizing nature. And decentralization is the key to getting that government boot off the back of your neck. I don't care if it's your local municipality. I don't care if it's the federal government. Decentralize the power. Decentralize the control. And you have more freedom in which to operate. Jeffrey Tucker says, in government, a ban is a ban. Something to be enforced, not tweaked according to new discoveries and approaches. Regulatory interventions stop the progress of history by disabling the limitless possibilities of the human imagination. Now, he points out something here that I think is really worth remembering, and that is we live in times without much good news in politics. Let's at least take the weekend to celebrate the embrace of progress, acquiescence to the wisdom of markets, the new freedom found for this hugely important symbol of mankind's triumph over the poverty of nature. Speaking specifically of the incandescent light bulb. Hey, it's a small victory, but I say we we have to celebrate those things where we find them. And if that small victory is that I have efficient, I shouldn't say efficient. That sounds too much like I'm trying to gauge the environmental efficiency. But if we have warm, workable light without government to, you know, wagging its finger at us or giving us the stink eye because you're using a couple more watts than you're really supposed to. That's a non-sustainable attitude. Hey, so be it. I like having choices. Uh, If you ever want to look up something really interesting, too, I would strongly recommend Google the term permissionless innovation. A couple of, uh, I guess it's, it may have been a couple of years ago. Connor Boyack and I had a chance on the Society and the State podcast to interview, I think his name is Adam Thierer or Theory. And he's with the Mercatus Institute or uh, Mercatus.org. But his whole thing is permissionless innovation. And just in a nutshell, it's, it's like this. We, the default setting right now is if somebody comes forward with a really innovative idea, there's this premise that, well, the first thing you need to do then is you go to the government and you ask them, may I go ahead and introduce this to the public? You know, at which point a bunch of bureaucrats are going to step forward. Well, we'll need this environmental impact statement. Pay this fee. Let us, uh, you know, oversee this. Get this license. The bottom line is you have to have permission from somebody in power before you can start to implement or market anything. And I know there are those who will know, Brian, this is just for our safety. But the default setting needs to be you don't need our permission to innovate. The only time government should get involved is when someone has done something that is actually causing harm or has caused measurable, provable harm to another person. We don't need government to to tell us that this is this is the way that it has to be done. And I'm saying this not from the standpoint of because all government is bad, but just from the standpoint of those regulators don't have superhuman mental skills or powers of discernment. They're people just like us. And they have an annoying tendency of taking something simple and complicating it. 
timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.